Right. So, um, yeah. So the 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 rally is losing steam for two reasons. One, um, stocks take two steps forward and one step back. That's what they do in rallies. Uh, we had taken two giant steps forward. We were in technically overbought conditions. We were at the top end of the uh, breakout channel that stocks formed. Um, we were well detached from the moving averages, so it was time for us to take a step back. So we were in a technical condition. Uh, which would lend itself to a pullback on any sort of negative news. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing this week? Um, Earlier, short week, got that long weekend, that was nice. Um... I saw it off to a rough start this week, but I think we're going to find some strong technical support here. There's a big reinflation narrative going around, and I just don't buy it at all. But we'll get into that later. So looking forward to talking about it. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into that and all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Okay, Luke, uh, today I want to talk about the macros quickly first and then jump into a rundown of a few of our favorite stocks that we've covered in the past and reported er that all have reported earnings last week and get a quick update on those names. But first, let's start with those macros. Uh, stocks are dropping again, and there's a lot of talk about the January rally now rolling over thanks to reinflation concerns. Uh, can you talk a little about where these concerns are coming from? Um, and again, I guess you already know that we di you disagree with them. Um, so what makes you unfazed by the January inflation reports? Right. So, um, yeah, so the, the, the rally is losing steam for two reasons. One, um, Stocks take two steps forward and one step back. That's what they do in rallies. Uh, we had taken two giant steps forward. We were in technically overbought conditions. We were at the top end of the uh, breakout channel that stocks had formed. Um, we were well detached from the moving averages. So it was time for us to take a step back. So we were in a technical condition, uh, which would lend itself to a pullback on any sort of negative news. So that brings us to the second reason. We got some negative economic news last week with the inflation report. CPI and PPI both came in above expectations. Now everybody's talking about inflation reheating and the Fed having to go more aggressively than everybody thought. So the futures curve on, on Fed funds rates is completely lifted um, by about 100 basis points over the past few weeks. And now the futures market is hardly pricing in any rate cuts for 2023, whereas before they were pricing in a bunch of rate cuts for 2023. So the narrative is completely shifted over the past two to three weeks, mostly around last week with the hotter than expected inflation reports. But the reason I'm not buying any of that stuff, and I think it's a bunch of BS, is because January was an anomalous blip in what is still a very broad and big disinflation trend. In January, we had a massive risk asset rally. Every single financial asset rose in value. That includes all commodities. Oil prices rose. Gas prices rose. Metal prices rose. Aluminum. 
copper. Copper really took off. These are things that are input costs to everything in the world, pretty much. All the products that we use. Wheat went up. Corn went up. Lumber went up because the housing market was turning around. So we had this massive sort of huge rebound rally in all these commodities that had been falling, these commodity prices that had been falling. But guess what's happened in February? It's completely reversed course. Bloomberg's commodity index rose 5% from the January low, early January low to the late January high, rose 5%. February month to date, it's down more than 6%. So we've wiped out not only all of that January commodity and price inflation, but we're also now to the lowest level. The Bloomberg Commodity Index is at its lowest level since Russia invaded Ukraine. So we are at the lowest commodity price levels since Russia invaded Ukraine, which is since inflation became a problem. At the same time, if you look at all the, the kind of price indices, they're continuing to point lower in terms of all the surveys, the manufacturing surveys, the services surveys, composite surveys, S&P Global, ISM, no matter what they are, the price indices, prices paid, price expectations, they're still trending lower. Now, you also have a situation where, and if you look at all the consumer spending data from January, for some odd reason, it was really, really strong. MasterCard data was really, really strong. Every single company that reported earnings for January. So January is a pretty good month. But then here in February, things are slowing down. Walmart and Home Depot, stalwarts of the consumer economy, both just reported numbers and they reported fabulous January numbers. Walmart US comps were up 8.3% this quarter versus 8.2% last quarter. So their comparable sales growth actually accelerated in this previous quarter. But guess what? They're guiding for comps to be up just 2% this year because they're saying the consumer is definitely slowing down. That quarter ended January 31st. So they went from 8.3% in the uh, months of November, December, January, and now they're guiding for 2% over the next 12 months. Something happened in February. Consumer is slowing. Consumer is slowing. Consumer is slowing. So I think what happened is you have this massive, broad, very significant and strong disinflation trend that had a bump in January because there was this massive risk at, risk asset rally where everything rose in price and consumers started to feel a little good. You also had the New Year vibes in there. Everybody was starting to feel a little bit better. And now that's over. Now we're in the hangover stage of that little quick little party. And so the disinflation trend is back. In February, it has come back with a sweeping force, and it's going to continue to accelerate into March, April, May, and June. So long story short, I don't buy the reinflation crap at all. I don't think it's happening one single bit. There's a lot of people out there saying inflation, you know, once it's above 7% or 8%, it takes forever to get back to 5%. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. They wiped it out in the 70s pretty quickly. They just screwed up and had to redo it again in the early 80s. And then once they did it right in the early 80s, bam, look at the chart. That thing straight line knife fell off a cliff. Inflation, when it is on the way out, it is on the way out. There is no chart. If you pull up that CPI chart for the past seven years where it's like inflation comes down five, six, seven percent. Oh, head fake. Now we're going higher. That doesn't happen. It comes down quickly. It comes down significantly. These trends are long. When inflation is here, it goes. When disinflation is here, it also goes. 
So we're still in that massive disinflation trend. And I do not believe that the January numbers really did anything to change the thesis for that, because here in February, all the trends that were in January have reversed core. So any reinflation we did see in January has been completely wiped out in February. And that creates a very bullish setup for stocks because stocks are selling off for two reasons, the reinflation narrative and the Fed's going to have to hike for longer narrative. That has caused a repricing of assets. So if you look at the futures market, look at futures pricing, the pricing, the, the pricing for CPI has now shifted significantly higher. The pricing for Fed rate hikes has now shifted significantly higher. We are back to where we were in October. The reason I got so bullish on stocks in October when we bottomed in October was because the market finally got ahead of the Fed. Forever in 2022, the story was the market saying the Fed's not going to go that far. The Fed's not going to go that high. No way, no way, no way. And the Fed did go as far and as high as they said they were going to go. Right. That was the story of 2022. So every time the Fed did exactly what they said they were going to do, the markets got hit hard because they didn't believe them. But in October, finally, the market finally learned their lesson and was like, oh, okay, the Fed is saying they're going to go here. Let's price above that level. Let's price above their dot plot. Let's price the futures market for the, the, the peak rate to be above what the Fed is saying. Once those expectations got set to that level, it removed room for upside surprises to the Fed funds rate, which removed room for downside surprises in stocks. And uncoincidentally, that's when this market bottomed and we started to rally. Well, ever since then, the Fed released a new dot plot, which increased their own projections for where their Fed funds rate goes. And the market's Fed funds rate has not gone up to that level yet. It has kind of stayed and moved a little bit higher, but has since December been persistently lower than where the Fed was until last week. We jumped above it. So again, we're now here in February 2023, where we were in October 2022. The market is once again ahead of the Fed. That removes room for upside surprises from the Fed, removes room from downside surprises out of stocks. And with inflation expectations now also creeping higher, it creates a nice base for downside surprises in March. I think the CPI in March is going to be really, really, really soft. I think the PPI is going to be really, really soft. The Fed's going to have their meeting. They're going to hike rates. Some people are fearful of 50. There's no way they go 50. That's 25. So in March, we're going to have a series of catalysts. Fed goes 25, CPI soft, soft PPI. Boom. That creates a catalyst for this stock market to turn around and rally once again into March. Into March, last week here, February, could be choppy. There's no real catalyst on the horizon, but we do have some technical support. So I expect us to hold these technical support levels until we get these big catalysts in March. And then we turn around and march on higher because the reality is, folks, the disinflation wave is here. And when you turn massive inflation into massive disinflation, stocks always rally every single time. And every other technical fact that you can think of is, is screaming by. And actually, one of the best ones I read was... Last week, the S&P 500 closed above its 200-day moving average for the 18th day in a row. So for 18 consecutive days, not only did the S&P 500 pop above that 200-day, but it stayed above the 200-day for 18 straight days. Since 1950, the past 72 years, every time the stock market crossed above its 200-day and then stayed above it for 18 days, the market never revisited the bottom. The market had already bottomed and stocks went on to soar over the next, I believe they were a positive 100% of the time, three months later, six months later, nine months later, and 12 months later with average 12 month returns of 20%. So 
to me, that, that's really convincing because it's not just we popped above the 200-day. It's we popped above it and held it. You don't just have to make a sharp rally higher for it to be convincing in price action. You need to have a sharp rally higher and then hold the rally. We've held the rally. Yes, stocks are peeling back a little bit. But I mean, across the board, stocks are still up strongly in 2023, despite the recent pullback. That is a sign that the market is saying, okay, there's noise here. There's volatility. But we've seen the worst. Inflation, we're over that hump. And it also doesn't look like the economy is going to go into a recession. Um, consumer spending is still pretty strong. It's peeling back a little bit, but it's pretty strong. And the labor market is really, 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 really strong. With a strong labor market, very tough to go into a recession. So I think that a lot of things are shaping up here for what we just saw to be sort of the, the nadir of a pullback, a short-term pullback in a new bull market trend. And that in March would power significantly higher. So I'd be a buyer on recent weakness. Definitely would be a buyer. So going to your analogy, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Should we expect this for the rest of 2023? You're saying March is going to have yeah. a similar rally for January. Should we expect April to be kind of a little bit more choppier in terms of the market and then that pattern continuing throughout yeah, 2023? Yeah, and that's exactly what it's, it's, we're, we're in a cycle right now. Mm -hmm. We're just in a cycle. And, and that cycle is, okay, we're going to... So here, here's how it started. January 2023, we rally significantly because everybody's hopeful disinflation is here. Inflation is over. The Fed's going to pause. The economy's restabilizing. And it's animal spirits again. And we get this massive risk-on rally. And then in that risk-on rally, you get a little bit of reinflation because it lifts oil prices. It lifts gas prices. It lifts metal prices. It lifts um, uh, wheat prices and corn prices and lumber prices. And the housing market starts to come back and housing prices start to stabilize. So... Um, that happens. And what that happens is then it creates reinflation worries. And so then in February, we sell off on these reinflation worries because the, the February or the January CPI and PPIs are hot. And now all of a sudden the Fed's going to hike. But as we sell off, then all of a sudden, all those prices I just talked about come back. They retreat. <laughs> so then March comes around and all of a sudden it's like, oh, disinflation's back. Off to the races again. <laughs> Fed's going to pause. Fed's going to pivot. And then we rally all over again. And then come April, and it's like, oh, wait, we just sent up oil prices four or five bucks a gallon uh, or a barrel. And then now we come back down because the CPI is hot again, and the CPI is hot again. And then we, we keep doing this cycle over and over and over again. You're going to have a really strong month, a weak month, a really strong month, a weak month, a really strong month, a weak month, two steps forward, one step back. Importantly, and why I'm bullish is because I think the trend of this is it's going to be down and to the right for inflation. So the trend is going to be down. We're going to take a steep fall and then flatten and then a steep fall and then flatten and then a steep fall and then flatten, which means in terms of stocks, we're probably going to rally five to 10 percent, come back four to five percent, rally five to 10 percent, come back four to five percent, rally five to 10 percent, come back four to five percent. You do that month over month over month over month and all of a sudden net net you're up 25, 30 percent. That's exactly what I think stocks do in 2023. It's going to be two steps forward, one step back, because that's just how you beat inflation without a recession. You know, when you have a recession, inflation just goes out the window in a couple months because everybody stops spending and the economy goes kaput. But so <laughs> stocks go kaput too. You don't want that. How do you beat inflation without a recession? You beat it by going two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. You grind away at it. You chip away at it. And that's how you beat inflation without a recession. The Fed knows what they're doing. They're well aware of this. And so I think they're going to guide us to a soft landing. I think we're going to have a really good stock market 
uh, net return in 2023, but it's going to be volatile. And so buy the pullbacks, buy the 5% pullbacks are opportunities, my two cents. All right. Uh, well, with the macros covered, uh, let's go into some single stock analysis. Uh, first up, Quantscape, the big QS. Uh, they reported earnings last week and saw some super volatile trading, uh, up 33%, I believe, then down 16%. A wild two days surrounding earnings. Why the volatility and what's the big takeaway from the Quantumscape report? Yeah, so I think the volatility has nothing to do with the earnings report itself. Uh, I think the volatility just has to do with a lot of short covering into the report and then um, – you know, the fact that it was up 33% going into the report, it wasn't going to sustain those gains. And the fact that it was up, I think it's still up like 82% year to date. I mean, it's just been on fire because it's a heavily shorted stock and heavily shorted stock. High beta, heavily short stocks were, were the big winners in January and early February. So I think that's what's going on with it. That explains the volatility. Nothing to do with earnings. As far as the earnings are concerned, I thought it was, it was very good. I thought the report was very good because the company has finally shipped prototypes to automakers. Those automakers are testing them. The company can't disclose exactly how those tests are going due to the nature of the agreements, but they can say that they are going well. They can generally say they are going well. So that's good to hear that they've shipped prototypes to these solid state batteries and the automakers are, are pleased with the results so far. That's a positive. Um, and then another big positive is that the company is becoming very disciplined with their cash control. So as opposed to spending, 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 spending to innovate, 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 they are spending to innovate, innovate, innovate. One spend for three innovates. They're figuring out how to do more with less. And I like that. So their cash runway was going to expire in 2024. Now it's extended out to 2025, which is huge because that's when real commercial operations are expected to start. So I look at Guantanamo as a company that is fully funded into self-sustaining itself for 2025 with a bunch of revenues and a bunch of orders for its solid state battery cells. So I like what's going on with QuantumScape. I think the stock is really, really woefully undervalued here. I think the tech is still very, very strong. Um, I do believe solid state batteries are, are the future of um, not just automobile batteries, but all consumer electronic batteries. Anything that has lithium ion in it right now uh, can become a lithium metal bat battery. So I think that um, QuantumScape is, is working on tech that's going to change the world. I think the stock is undervalued. I think the team is very strong. The balance sheet says there are no liquidity concerns there. And the, the progress of their technological development is, is very promising right now. And they're hitting their target. So I like the stock here. It's coming back to life. Is it going to sustain? I mean, I think so, but you don't, I mean, you can trade QuantumScape stock. There's a lot of volatility, so you can, but that's not why I would own it. I own it because I think in five years, the company is going to be selling hundreds of thousands, if not millions of solid state battery cells to a dozen different automakers, and we'll have billions and billions and billions of revenues and hundreds of millions, if not billions in profits. So that's why I own it. I own it for the next five years. And what I saw, what I read on, um, and what I heard on, uh, was it last Thursday or Wednesday they reported? I think it was Wednesday night they reported. Um, what I heard and read in that report was very good for me uh, from a bull thesis perspective, long-term bull thesis perspective. So I still like Longscape stock quite a bit here. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, next up, one of your favorite streaming companies, Roku, also report, uh, reported earnings last week, and Wall Street apparently loved the results, sending the stock up a whole bunch. Did you like the report? If so, is it time to get bullish on Roku stock? Yeah, I mean, I I love the report. Yeah, because here's what's going on with Roku is there's to me there's three things, well, two things happening really. Uh, the two reasons to get really bullish. The first is the company is reaccelerating its user growth and engagement growth in a very bullish manner. So accounts rose 16%, active accounts rose 16%, 
year over year on last quarter. That is the third consecutive quarter of accelerating account growth at Roku. Streaming hours growth also accelerated quarter over quarter, and that is the third consecutive quarter of streaming hours growth. So not only is Roku adding more users, but they're also getting those users more engaged. That's very bullish because engagement is the core of their business model. They're an advertising business model. Ad dollars follow eyeballs. If Roku is getting more and more people and Roku is getting those more and more people more and more engaged with the content on the platform, then that will inevitably translate into more ad dollars flowing into the Roku ecosystem. So I love what I'm seeing from an engagement and user growth perspective. Now, that's not translating into revenue growth right now because we are in an ad recession. Advertisers are tightening their belts and not exactly spending a lot of money everywhere, but, and also over the top advertising, OGT advertising is an experimental new ad channel. It's not the time for experimental budgets in advertising. If you're an advertiser, you're going to spend on what you know works, the tried and true, been around for 10, 15 years. And on the stuff that's kind of new and experimental, really exciting, but not really proven, you're going to kind of peel back that budget until times get surer. So that's why the big engagement growth is not translating into big revenue growth. But, 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 but we all know recessions don't last forever. We all know ad recessions don't last forever. We all know advertising budgets eventually re-expand and bounce back. When they do, those ad dollars follow the eyeballs. They follow the engagement. If Roku is accelerating engagement growth right now, all that means to me is in 12 months, they're going to have significant reacceleration in revenue growth because they have the user base, to, user base and user growth to warrant that revenue reacceleration. So I see Roku as a firm that, yes, right now revenues are bah, 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 not going anywhere. But in 12 months, that's going to be a huge swing higher once this ad recession runs through the economy and, and plays out fully. So I love what I'm seeing from that perspective. The second is that the company's finally figuring out how to manage costs. They're cutting costs, they're cutting costs, they're cutting costs. They're guiding the EBITDA profitability by what is it? 2024. Yeah. By 2024, they're guiding that positive EBITDA. So they're really figuring out how to grow responsibly. Like QuantumScape, this is a theme of earnings reports this, this quarter, is grow responsibly. Every company is figuring out how to grow responsibly. Roku is one of those companies. So I'm really excited about what I'm seeing from uh, from the fundamental financial perspective at Roku. Because I think, yes, the financials right now may not look good, but you have to look at what they're going to look like in the next 12 to 18 months. And I think 12 to 18 months down the road, Roku's gonna be a company with rapidly reaccelerating revenue growth to the 20% plus range. Gross margins will be re-expanding dramatically. Operating margins will be re-expanding dramatically. And the company will pop into EBITDA positive territory within 12 months. So you put that all together and that's a stock that probably soars from where it is currently. The valuation is really cheap. I think the comeback has legs. The comeback is already underway, but I think there's a lot more to it. I really do like Roku. Long term, they're building the, the, I would always call them the cable box of streaming TV because they are the access point through which we all access our various streaming services. Yes, there are competitors like Apple TV and all those other things, but they suck. Roku is the best. The controllers are the best. The UI is the best. They have um, all the channels. There's no competitive frictions where like if you own the Google thing, you can't play Amazon stuff or you have the Amazon stuff, you can't play Google stuff. There's no competitive friction. It's content neutral. So I, I love what they're doing and they continue to enhance the software. And that's what the user growth uh, tells me. They added 5 million accounts last quarter. They haven't had a 5 million account growth quarter since the pandemic. So they're growing quickly as quickly now as they did during the pandemic. That's powerful stuff. So I like Roku. I like what they're doing. I like the trajectory of the company over the next 12 to 18 months. I think the stock goes a lot higher. I do like it. 
All right. Um, another one of your favorite cloud companies, uh, uh, Twilio, reported great earnings last week, too, and the stock popped. Uh, looks like the company is guiding for a big year ahead. Any thoughts on that stock? Hey, same story. Same story, Aaron. Same story. Mm-hmm. Grow responsibly. Grow responsibly. Grow responsibly. Nobody ever questioned Twilio's top line revenue growth. Nobody ever questioned that. That was never a concern. This is a company that provides APIs for cloud communications. They power modern communications. That's the demand for that is is resilient. It's not going anywhere. It's it's secular. It's going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. This is a company that will grow at more than 15% per year for the next five to 10 years. That's a given. That's a fact. Everybody knows that. The concern with Twilio has always been margins every quarter. 20% 20% growth, 25% growth, 30% revenue growth, sometimes 50% revenue growth. Yet margins don't go anywhere. They kept losing money and there was no positive operating leverage happening at that business. This was one of the the businesses that was probably worst at growing responsibly for a long time. They literally spent at all costs to grow. They grew they grew no matter what the cost. That that shifted. That that attitude, that mentality has shifted. Twilio is now cutting back on expenses, realizing positive operating leverage, guiding towards big margin expansion. Yes, it's coming at the expense of a little bit of revenue growth, but not much. And the street likes it. The street likes, okay, give up a little bit of revenue growth. That's okay for a lot of margin expansion. The street likes that. That's the economy and market we're in right now. Twilio has finally reset its mentality to do that. And I think now that the mentality is reset, management can guide towards and beat expectations over the next several months, especially on earnings, and that'll allow the stock to keep powering higher. So I, I like what I'm seeing there. And again, the theme is, as you're picking up on here is these companies, they were engine, they were born in the era of zero interest rates. They were born in the era of spend at all costs, grow at all costs. That's the era they were born in. So they developed DNA for that era. They developed a mentality of that. That was who they were. We grow, 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 and we'll worry about profitability later. That era has shifted. We're in a different paradigm right now. These companies took time to shift because they were born in that era. And, you know, it's kind of tough to give up on what you were born on. But now they're finally and fully making that transition. Twilio's doing it. Roku's doing it. A couple other companies that reported earnings are clearly doing it. And so I think now they're making that shift. You do want to get aggressive on these stocks because not only are they undervalued and oversold, but their management teams have reshifted their mentalities to be appropriate for the current era so that they will beat Wall Street expectations on what Wall Street cares about. Wall Street doesn't care about revenue right now. Wall Street cares about profits and cash flows. I think these companies have now successfully re-engineered themselves to beat estimates on those metrics. And that's very important for the stock. So I, I like Twilio, I like Roku, and I'm assuming we're going to keep talking about some more. So, so what else do <laughs> you got? You're absolutely right. And uh, staying in the cloud world, uh, Datalog uh, didn't do too hot last week with its earnings. Why not? And should we buy this dip? Um, yeah. So, so Datadog is, um, first off, long-term, I love Datadog as a company. I think observability. So what Datadog does is they operate an observability platform. Observability is essentially the uh, the diagnostics of, of your IT infrastructure, 
uh, of your enterprise software stack. It essentially tracks the health and monitors all of the various applications you have running in your enterprise and your ecosystem tells you when something's wrong, identifies when there's errors, identifies where there's threats, and in some cases can automate responses to those things. Um, so it keeps everything running smoothly. And that's going to become increasingly important for the enterprise because the more complicated these IT stacks get, which inevitably they will, you're going to have an app for this and an app for that and a software for this and a software for that. You know, it used to be one, two, three software programs per company. Now it's morphing into 10, 12, 15. And in the future, it's going to be 30, 40, 50 that the enterprise, any old enterprise is going to have dozens of software programs and applications running through its ecosystem. The more complex that ecosystem does get, the more necessary an observability platform becomes. So I think observability is one of those enterprise software platforms that is uh, on track to reach ubiquity within the next five to 10 years. And Datadog has, per my research and my team's research and, and listening to people in the industry, has the best in class observability platform out there. So this is the best product in a growing field that will reach ubiquity feels like Salesforce a couple of years ago, feels like Microsoft Office, you know, 10, 15 years ago. This feels like an early stage, big time company. So I, I really like what's going on long-term there. Why did the stock drop last week? Well, you know, I think that it would have to be because of their weak guide for next year. Um, and that is because of the macroeconomic backdrop. But I think that macro backdrop will improve a little bit as we talked about at the top of this call. So I don't think that guide is something we should be selling or buying the stock on. Rather, I think we should be buying the stock on the fact that there's a lot of long-term potential here and it's not appropriately valued into the stock price. So I'd be buyers on weakness of Datadog stock regardless of what they're saying about this this coming year. Okay. Uh, moving into commerce, I want to ask you about Shopify and, of course, your favorites, Crocs. Uh, the former had a bad report and the stock got crushed. Mm -hmm. The latter had a great report and the stock popped. Um, again, are you bullish on both of these names? Right. So let's talk about Shopify first. Um, I pulled the report in front of me. I wrote some notes down. Let me make sure I... Yeah, yeah. When you look at shop, I don't think that they got the memo of grow responsibly. Mm. Um, they're they're making all of these investments in things like audiences, which is essentially marketing for their merchants on uh, their fulfillment network um, and things like that. And in the big expansion to offline retail. Now, I think all of those things are very, very, very good moves to be making long term. Fantastic moves. Um, audiences is a really interesting business. I mean, if they can in-house marketing for all of those merchants, digital marketing for all those merchants, that could be a huge business. We're talking like adding a mini trade desk to Shopify. That could be huge. The fulfillment network, we all know Amazon's fulfillment network has constituted an enormous competitive advantage for that commerce business. So it makes sense why Shopify wants to replicate that and have its own massive competitive advantage through a fulfillment network. So that makes a ton of sense. Um, the offline retail expansion, what the pandemic taught us is that e-commerce is never going to eat up the entire retail pie. It will continue to grow gradually, but offline retail will forever have a place in this world, at least in our lifetimes. So it makes sense that Shopify wants to get into that world a little bit more, considering they already own a bunch of merchants and merchants also realizing that 
most merchants these days, I would imagine, are not either fully offline or fully online. They are some combination of both, at least the most successful ones are. Shopify has a lot of online merchants. If it can capture all the offline ones too, you know, capture their online customers' offline operations, you know, that, that that's a huge growth vertical for the company. So I think these are the right moves to be making, but the market's not rewarding them because they're coming at the expense of margins. Profit margins are not improving here. They have been in deterioration for a while. They continue to deteriorate. They are expected to continue to deteriorate in the coming quarter and coming year. So that's why the stock got crushed. Hey, what do you do with it here? It depends on if you're a long-term guy or a short-term guy. If you're a long-term guy, you're looking at it and say, I love these investments they're making. They're going to constitute huge competitive advantages. They're going to elongate the growth runway. And eventually, the investments will stop. So two to three years down the road, you're going to have accelerating revenue growth here with robust margin expansion. That's going to power the stock higher. If you're a short-term guy, you're saying, okay, they missed the boat on the grow responsibly narrative or message. And so maybe I can find a different stock to play in, in the next 12 months. It all depends on who you are. Next 12 months, Shopify stock, it looks richly uh, valued and it's not doing the right things for this market. So the stock probably doesn't succeed. Next two to three years, I think the stock does succeed tremendously because it's a fabulous company making all the right moves to power tremendous long-term growth. So again, depends what your time horizon is. Shopify stock, kind of a mixed bag at these levels. Oh, and then Crocs, right? You asked about yes. Crocs? Your yes, favorite. my favorite Crocs. We own, we own lots of Crocs shoes over here. Um, yeah, Crocs is just killing it. I mean, let me pull up the numbers here. I think last I remember it was like 60% plus revenue growth. Um, yeah, they had, they had more than 60% revenue growth last quarter and they're guiding for 30% revenue growth next quarter and then double digit revenue growth here in 2023. So yeah, I mean, you could say 60 to 30 to double digit, call it 12, 15. Uh, that's a slowdown, but I mean, they're sustaining massive growth on top of massive growth, which, you know, normally in the fashion world, if it's just a trend, <laughs> you see the company grow 60% and then the next year is down 50%. It's not like they grow 60% and then grow 10%. When that happens, that means this is much more than a come and go trend because fashion trends don't last that long. But Crocs has been hot now for 2020. Actually, it started in 2018. So 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, 22, and now going into 23, another year of double-digit growth. That's five years of very strong growth for this company. I don't think Crocs is a trend. It's a comfort for secular fashion pivot, and Crocs is at the epicenter of it. So I really like Crocs as a long-term investment. The stock's still cheap, low P, multiple, good growth prospects. Everybody's worried it's just a trend, but it's not. I think the numbers continue to underscore that it's just not, or it's not just a trend. It's much more than that. Um, maybe somebody can come up from, from underneath them and, and compete with them, but I, I, I try to pay attention to the footwear world as much as I can. And I, I, don't, I don't see another Crocs in the making. Like Crocs is Crocs is Crocs, and no one's trying to go for their territory. Mm. There are a lot of people trying to steal Adidas and Nike mm. uh, territory, trying to steal market share like all birds. Um, but I don't see anybody trying to encroach on Crocs, which is really interesting because now I'm just kind of talking about this and I'm realizing that when you look at like athleisure, Lululemon, king, king of the space. Uh, but now you have uh, brands like Aloe Yoga and Gymshark that are stealing market share. And that, that, I think it's going to hurt Lulu over the next three to five years. 
Nike and Adidas, kings of that space. But you have brands like Allbirds, and I think they're eating market share, and that's going to hurt them over the next three to five years, Nike and Adidas. But then you look at Crocs. I, I'm drawing blanks. I don't know anybody that's stealing Crocs market share. They just feel like the king of comfort first fashion and there's no other competitor. Yeah, I can't think of one. So from that perspective, <laughs> great stock. That, that's why it's the only, uh, full disclosure, um, it is the <laughs> only consumer discretionary retail stock that we own in our portfolios. Mm. It's Crocs. And um, I, that, that's a big reason why is they're, they're, they're competitionless almost. And they are at the epicenter of the most powerful shift in fashion since, well, I don't know, but I haven't been around long enough to say since, <laughs> but it's the longest shift in fashion I've ever seen in my lifetime. All right. Um, also in the world of commerce, we have Toast. Uh, the restaurant tech stock that you think could be a big winner. Uh, the stock mm. got crushed last week, though, on earnings. So again, is this another buying opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I just think the street got ahead of itself with the report. I mean, the stock really, really, really ran up into that earnings report and then, you know, got crushed, even though it was a double beat with great growth, great, they're, they're great location growth. So here, here's what they're doing right. They're adding a ton of locations. They're getting all those locations to use more and more of their products. They're squeezing more revenue per location uh, out of their locations than ever. They're growing margins very nicely. They're growing EBITDA very nicely. You're shrinking the EBITDA losses very nicely. And they're guiding towards all that continuing in the next quarter and the next year. So what's wrong with the report? I don't know. I really don't know. There, there was Fundamentally, there was nothing wrong with the report outside of the fact the stock ran up a ton ahead of the report. And then it delivered a report that pretty much everyone thought was going to be great. And it was great, but it didn't deliver that extra greatness, mm. I guess. So the stock came back down. I bet it bottoms around current levels and then continues its charge higher. I absolutely love what Toast is doing long term, folks. I, I think the ration industry needs to be entirely digitized. Cash is trash. It's old. I don't know who uses cash anymore. It's all about cards, Apple Pay, digital payment methods. Companies need to develop ecosystems around that. So not only do they need to sell it in their restaurants, but they also need to sell online through DoorDash or these other applications, if they have one platform that can handle all that, all those payments and allow them to seamlessly extend into new channels, that's going to optimize that restaurant's efficiency. Not to mention Toast also has backend operations. So it can manage supply chains, you know, uh, a lot hours for, for waiters and employees and stuff like that uh, can send orders. So like when you're at the table and you're ordering something, they just type it in on their little toast machine and boom, it immediately gets sent back to the kitchen and the kitchen has it. They know exactly what to do as opposed to handing tickets or like running back and forth and having it input into a different machine. Toast just simplifies and optimizes, digitizes the entire restaurant operating process. It is a fabulous product, a fabulous platform. And I think that stock is a real big long-term winner. So yes, I'd be a buyer on weakness after that. That earnings report, which is pretty good, but got crushed because it was a bad tape and the stock had run up significantly into the report. Okay. Um, well, that covers all of our topics this week, but we do have a bunch of fan questions this week. Uh, starting with from Ian S. 
uh, bought STEM a while back and know that it is a sector that you are keen on. Just when the stock was on a roll, it tanked 14% after earnings, revenue missed by 2.5%, and EPS by 2.3%. Time to jump ship, or is the best still yet to come? Um, yeah, so STEM, I think is, I mean, it's it's fine. I, I Yeah, the, the report, Wall Street didn't like it because they guided... 2023 revenues below consensus, but I think things are are pretty strong there still. I mean, when I look at the, the growth profile of the company, it's it's very 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 strong. Um, energy storage stocks have just kind of topped out recently. They had a really big run in the second half of 2022. A lot of them rose 100 percent, 200 percent, 300 percent or more in that stretch, while the market was kind of going nowhere. And now they're kind of giving up a little bit of that steam. So, okay. Let it give up a little bit of steam, and and I think you still got to stick with the narratives because stick with the stocks because the narratives remain very strong. That energy storage is is going to have a big twenty twenty three. This company is going to benefit from huge revenue growth, and massive margin expansion, big earnings growth. I think STEM is that. When I look at STEM's growth profile, I'm pulling it up right now um, on my worksheet here. You know, you're, you're looking at a company that's going to grow revenues. Well, it grew revenues by one hundred and eighty five percent this year, so fabulous. You're looking at 67% revenue growth next year, 36% the year after that, 24 the year after that, 32 the year after that. So th- this is a 25% plus revenue grower over, over the next four to five years. Uh, you're looking at adjusted EBITDA margins that are going to continue to expand dramatically. I mean, adjusted EBITDA is expected to go from minus 50 million, minus 46 million this year to about 276 million. So minus 50 to 300 million by, by 2026. That's, that, that's a huge ramp. Um, and you look at how cheap the stock is relative to all that. So you, let, let's say there's that $300 million in EBITDA in, in 2026, right? That's, that, that's a reasonable target for where, where, the, um, where the company can get to. And you're looking at the market cap today of $1.2 billion. $300 million, 2026 EBITDA, $1.2 billion market cap. That's 4X on 2026 EBITDA. Normally, a stock like this could probably fetch a 20X multiple. 25x multiple on EBITDA. So let's let's be conservative. Apply 20x on that 300. That's six bill. That's basically six times the current valuation. So I do like STEM. I think this is a buy and hold long term. I don't see any reason to react uh, very violently to last week's earnings report. Um, if a company reported earnings last week, more likely than not, it got hit because the tape was bad. Hmm. And that just tells you the macroeconomics are still driving the whole narrative in the markets right now. All right. Uh, next question from JJC producer. What are the implications of Tesla's announcement that they will open up their charging stations to other EVs for companies like ChargePoint and STEM? Are they doomed to be overwhelmed in the wake of Tesla's giant wave of market power? Um, okay, let me see if I understand the question. So the question is, well, let me, let me segment the question. First off, what do I think of Tesla opening up its charging network? Um, I think it's fantastic news for the electric vehicle revolution. I think that you need, I mean, you need all of these moving parts working together. You need multiple, there are multiple gas station operators, right? That what, there are about six big ones in the United States and a bunch of small mom and pa ones too. So there are multiple gas station operators, call it a dozen in the United States. You're going to need about a dozen electric vehicle charger operators too. So it's good. And they all need to be, you know, a gas station is not like I pull up with my Ford pickup truck and I can't use it at this gas station because it's run by somebody that doesn't like Ford. No, it, it doesn't work like that, right? You have a dozen gas station operators 
that all serve all cars or all gas powered cars. Um, the electric vehicle world is going to shake out the same way. You're going to have maybe probably five or six major electric vehicle station operators, recharging station operators. All of them are going to accept all cars. Tesla opening up its network just means they're going to be one of the players. What does it mean for ChargePoint? Nothing. I don't think it means diddly squat for ChargePoint. It's good for the electric vehicle revolution, by extension, good for ChargePoint, but it's not going to hinder ChargePoint's growth. We need a lot more charging stations. I think Bloomberg New Energy Finance came out with the estimate saying we need nine. We need to grow the number of charging stations in the U.S. by nine-fold in 2030. Tesla can't do that alone. They make cars. That's their first and foremost business. The charging station thing is an afterthought for them. It's, it's a side hustle. Mm. they're not going to be able to, as a side hustle, grow the industry ninefold. They're going to need the help of ChargePoint. They're going to need the help of Volta. Shell bought Volta, right? We talked about that, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So that's, the, you know, Shell, Shell is clearly going to try and expand that business significantly. Um, you're going to need all of these companies to continue to do very big things, very big growth in, in the EV industry, EV charging industry, in order to get that charging infrastructure to a point where it needs to be to sustain an entirely electric U.S. automotive fleet. So I don't think there's really negative implications for ChargePoint. If anything, it's actually a positive implication because it'll drive the whole revolution forward. And we need all the help we can get to push this forward. Who would you say is are the top three leaders in kind of this uh, collection of charging stations that are open to everybody right now that are kind of leading that way? Yeah, I would say there are two, ChargePoint and Tesla. Okay. I mean, their charge point is significantly larger than everybody else, and Tesla has probably the best chargers. So I, I would think that those two are, are like 1A and 1B, and everybody else is like way, way below them, way behind them. So um, if, if you're looking for safer bets on EV charging, uh, Tesla or ChargePoint. ChargePoint's the only pure play. No one's buying Tesla stock for EV charging. Mm -hmm. So and that's another important factor here. It's just the dynamics of buying and selling stocks, right? If someone wants to buy into EV charging exposure, they're going to buy ChargePoint. It's a pure play. So I think that also is going to help ChargePoint stock in the short term. All right. Uh, next question from Roger uh, Banky. Luke, what is your take on Rivian's foray into the electric bike world? Won't that take some of the focus off of the cars? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't. I don't. Know. I, I don't like them going into the e-bike world. I, I, don't, I don't think there's a big market for e-bikes. I think it's silly. I think it's niche. I don't think it's very profitable. Um, and at a time when Rivian should be all hands on deck on ramping production of the R1T and R1S, I don't like the report that they're getting into e-bikes. But it was one report. It hasn't really been super confirmed by management or the company. Uh, I'd have to imagine they're doing it, but they're dedicating 0.2% of resources to, to looking into it, maybe. So I don't think it's like, okay, we need to be worried because all of a sudden Rivian's taking 5% of production that could be going to R1Ts and R1Ss and making e-bikes. I, I highly doubt that's happening. I would have to say, okay, they're 99.9% .9 in the R1T and R1S world. And they're just like, hey, this e-bike thing kind of interesting. Let's see what we can do. And they've assigned a few engineers to try and 
try and mess with that and see where it goes. But yeah, no, I'm 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 with the person who asked this question. I, I don't want to see Rivian doing anything <laughs> besides ramping the R1T and the R1S because those are fabulous cars and they need to build a lot more of them mm -hmm. to become a really successful company. And I, so far, they've been doing that. They're the one EV maker that has really hit their production targets. And I, I like that. And I don't want that to change. Mm. So then what do you think the choice to even go into this right now, as opposed to maybe delaying this until they're on better footing? I don't know. It could be something as silly as the CEO's buddy brought up the idea and was like, this could be interesting. And they decided, okay, maybe I'll put a few engineers on it. I mean, I, I, I don't know. The CEO mm -hmm. read an article about e-bikes in China or e-bikes somewhere else and was like, ah, oh, you know what? Maybe we could do a little bit of something here, you know? It could be something super silly. It probably is something super silly. I don't think there's any real, like, the the company is not making a pivot. Like, Meta is making a pivot to subscriptions. Mm -hmm. No, it, the company's not making a pivot here. Mm -hmm. It's just a foray into some random e-bike stuff that may or may not yield any results. And if it does or doesn't, for me, it has no implication on, on the narrative of, of Rivian and the reason to own Rivian stock, which is the R1T and the R1S and the successful production ramp of those two vehicles. Okay. Uh, next question from Randy Green. What's your take on versus AI? I've read that they have landed a couple of eight-figure contracts. Also, they have recently partnered with SVT Robotics. Love to hear your take on them. Uh, mind throwing me the ticker? VRSSF. Okay. Um, don't know much about this company. 67 cent stock. It's not great. $43 million market cap. Only 3 million cash on the balance sheet. Burned 7 million cash last year. I don't, I, I don't know what they do. I don't know what uh, they're working on. I don't know what deals uh, the question um, is referring to. But I can say just looking at the bare bones financials of this company with 3 mil of cash on the balance sheet going into 2022 – after burning seven million cash, free cash last year, uh, that doesn't give me confidence this company's going to be around for much longer. And/or it means the company's going to need, need to raise a bunch more capital uh, in 2023 at pretty unfavorable turn terms with interest rates where they are and investor equity appetite where it is. So uh, I can't say I can get too excited about this, and it's not a stock I really want to look more deeply into, just given it, its pure financial backdrop. Okay. Uh, next question from Rob Norman. Luke, what are your thoughts on Symbiotic Inc. and Berkshire Gray Inc.? Uh, Symbiotic is great. Symbiotic is absolutely great. Symbiotic is a superstar. So the way I look at Symbiotic and Berkshire Gray is they are applied AI. When you take AI and you make it do something in the real world, you get robotics and you get automation. And that's what Berkshire Gray and Symbiotic are. And they take that and they apply it to warehouses. Uh, which is where automation actually really is necessary right now because one, we have a labor shortage and two, labor costs over there are rising significantly. Not to mention demand for fulfillment and stuff like that is rising because e-commerce is, is rising as well. Um, so I think that, and then also um, robotics is, is a very difficult thing. It's a very difficult science, but in warehouses, we have made big advancements to where robots can actually do things very, 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 very well. Um, I love Symbotics kind of all in one robotic warehouse. They have giant robot arms that take inbound parcels, 
break them apart, put them on these little like autonomous vehicles, drive them to storage centers inside of the um, uh, fulfillment center. They raise up, they go and store it at, you know, the the sixth shelf of aisle J or whatever, and they keep it all inventoried and, and skewed. And then when the outbound parcel needs to be collected, all these autonomous little vehicles go out and grab it. They fetch all these items. They go and then the two robotic arms put together the outbound parcel for, you know, the store in San Diego, California, and then they put it on the truck and then boom, it goes. So it's an entirely automated process from beginning to end. I like that. I think it's genius. Walmart likes it. They're automating all their warehouses in that fashion. The stock has got a bid with the with the AI wave. I, I, I like that stock a, a ton. I think Berkshire Gray is doing some really interesting stuff too, but they just got a buyout offer. Or there's reports of a buyout offer that Berkshire Gray did confirm. SoftBank wants to buy the company right around, I think it was buck thirty or something. So I think that significantly undervalues the company and its long-term potential. But given the desperation of shareholders at the current moment, that's a stock that went from 10 bucks to like 50 cents. Um, I'm sure they'd be happy to take that buck 30 buyout. So I like Berkshire Gray as a company. From an investment perspective, I think B Gray stock just gets bought out at buck 30 and we move on. Uh, so if you want the pure play in, in robotics and AI automation, I think it's, it's symbolic. All right. Which I love. Okay, good. Uh, next question from Sterling Campbell. Uh, do you feel the onset of AI will make services like STEM's Athena software obsolete or redundant? Could the learning capabilities of sufficiently advanced AI outpace and outperform algorithm-based legacy software currently being used? Well, so uh, Athena is AI. STEM's um, software is an AI-powered system for power optimization. Um and the answer to that question, no, I, I don't think somebody else can develop an AI that's going to beat Athena because um, the biggest important, there's two things that really determine the quality of an AI platform or AI software. Uh, one is the abundance of data available, to, training data available to that, um, to that AI. And then two is the quality of that data. So it's all about data, right? And if STEM is this company that is an energy storage provider, which they are, and they are growing and growing and growing and growing and growing in the energy storage space and landing more and more contracts and installing more and more energy storage systems, they are gathering more and more data. That is high quality data because it is real time action data. Like it's actually doing work, right? So STEM has a bunch of data on energy. What If you're developing an energy storage AI, you're going to need a bunch of energy storage type data and really high quality actionable data to make a really good energy storage AI. STEM has both of those. So I don't think somebody like Meta or Amazon or Google or uh, Microsoft can develop an AI better than what, um, what STEM is building for its own purposes, for the energy storage purposes. And that gets into this actually, it's a really good question because it kind of brings up this broader topic of general AI versus specific AI. So general AI is this idea. We all think of general AI as what we see in movies, like an AI that can do everything. It can expand beyond its own training set and make decisions in other realms of expertise. So you can train it on energy storage data and all of a sudden it can extrapolate that, make connections and all of a sudden make decisions about solar make decisions about electric vehicles, make decisions about marketing. That's a general AI. We are nowhere close to that, not even scratching the surface of that. We are a 22 football fields away from that. We will likely not have general AI within our lifetimes and almost assuredly not within the next 10 years. 
What is being developed right now is specific AI. It is AI that is trained to do a specific task, trained on a specific data set to do a specific thing or series of things related to that data set. And it does those things very, very well, but it cannot extrapolate beyond the means of its data set to start making decisions on other matters. You can train an energy storage AI to be really good at optimizing energy storage, and that's it. It's not going to go and tell you how to market products. It's not going to tell you how to go and pick stocks. Meta has access to a bunch of social data, so they're going to make the best social AIs. Amazon has a bunch has access to all the consumer shopping data, so it's going to make the best consumer shopping AIs. Alphabet has access to the best in all of the um, consumer search data, so it's going to make the best consumer search AIs. These companies do not have access to all of the energy storage data, so they're not going to make the best energy storage AIs. Who does? STEM, Fluence. Those companies will make the best energy storage AIs. So that's a very important distinction for us to understand. General AI versus specific AI. General AI, people get really excited about it. They think it's here. <laughs> it's not. It is not. And in fact, when I talk to some of the people that are really in this field, you know, I, I have a buddy who's, who's uh, getting his PhD at MIT, actually studying AI and working at one of the most renowned AI, robot, or AI um, uh, laboratories, research laboratories in the world. Um, what the, the technology that is underpinning these specific AI programs doesn't even really help us build general AI. Like the techniques that we're going to end up using to build general AI won't be learned from us building specific AI. So we can make specific AI really, 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 really good over the next two to three years. And it's not going to say diddly squat about where general AI progress is. Because it's just, it's a different, different science almost, a different stroke. So um, that, that's also important to know that just because specific AI is getting really, really good and will continue to get really, really good and get a lot better does not mean that general AI is, is any closer than, than it is, than it was a couple of years ago. All right. <clears throat> Our last question from CS Lowe. What are your thoughts on Zillow and Open Door's recent partnership? Are we seeing more things to come? Yeah, you know, I mean, you guys know where I stand on real estate. I think that industry just needs to be in, like not entirely digitized, but it needs to be needs a, a big digital makeover. There is there are a lot of costs in there, a lot of deadweight costs. I think that Open Door has the right idea, Zillow has the right idea, Redfin has the right idea. They just got thrown into the worst housing market of all time. We talked about this, and now that housing market is stabilized, and you're seeing partnerships like this, I really like it because. That, that shows innovation. It shows they're not giving up and it shows that they're willing to try different things, partner up. If you yourself cannot redefine the multi-trillion dollar housing market, then maybe team up with your buddy who's trying to do the same thing. And they'll team up with their buddy who's trying to do the same thing. And then together we can create the Avengers and kick some ASS. And I think that's exactly what's going to go down in the housing market. That the digital wave in real estate is it's going to happen. And if it didn't happen, you know, over the past five years or 10 years, it will happen over the next five years and 10 years. And I think these guys are going to combine forces to all of a sudden enact really powerful solutions for, for home buyers, for home sellers, for real estate agents. I, I think Compass will probably get in the mix there and, and do some cool things. So I, I just like that whole digital wave of, of real estate. I think that is the future. I think it's where things are going. Yes, it's going to take a while. Yes, there's a lot of execution risk. Um, but it's a huge market. It's a huge market. 
So whoever successfully cracks this nut, and I think it's going to be multiple companies that do it. Like I said, Zillow, Open Door, Compass, Red. I think they can all work at Rocket Mortgage, uh, Rocket Companies, I guess they call it. But Rocket Mortgage is the hero product. They're also in the mix there. You know, I think these companies are going to work together to redefine the real estate industry over the next several years. And that as a result, these companies are going to grow together, rising tide for them. That's, that's how I view things. I know the thesis hasn't played out that way. And in fact, it's played out the opposite way. But I think that's not because the digitization wave stopped in real estate. It's because the real estate market went boop, 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 and just went splat on its face. Um, and once it, you know, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, fell back down with the pieces come back together, as the pieces of Humpty Dumpty of the real estate market come back together, I think these stocks, the digitization wave will continue and accelerate because people are going to look for efficiencies. And that's going to allow these stocks and these companies to succeed. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to the Avengers of digital housing. Uh, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors as always. Luke, do you have any last words before we wrap today? Um. Not particularly. I, I just think folks need to understand uh, a big picture perspective. 2023 is not going to be smooth sailing. I think stocks are going to soar this year. I think S&P is going to finish up more than 20%, close to 25 30%. I think the NASDAQ will close up more than 30%. I think a lot of high growth tech stocks will close up more than 50%, 60%, 70%, even 100%. But it's not going to be smooth sailing to those gains. It's going to be sharp rallies up, sharp pullbacks, sharp rallies, sharp pullbacks, sharp rallies, sharp pullbacks. It's going to be very jagged, very volatile, very violent. And so if you can't take the volatility and you're going to be scared to sell every single time you get a pullback, then this is probably isn't the market for you. Sit down and wait for 24. Wait, 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 wait for smoother waters. But if you can't accept the volatility, there are a lot of returns we made this year. I mean, look what happened in January. We saw stocks absolutely soar. A lot of stocks in our portfolio, I think our whole portfolio was up like 30% in January. That's in a month. That, that's in 30 days. Like that, those are huge returns. We're huge returns here. Already in 2022, actually, I think uh, the number changes every day, obviously. But <laughs> last I checked, it was like 160 stocks are up more than 100% this year. And more than 500 stocks are up more than 50%. It's February 21st. We're not even two months into the year. And already more than 500 stocks are up more than 50%. More than 160 stocks have doubled your money in, what is that, 51 days? That That's absurd. So, yes, I think 2023 is going to be highly volatile, very violent, very choppy. But for those that can accept and embrace volatility and not freak out at every time stocks retreat 4 to 5%, there are huge returns to be made in the big rallies that happen after those short pullbacks. Again, net, net I think S&P is up more than 20% this year. I think NASDAQ is up more than 30%. I think high growth tech, a lot of the stocks up more than 50%. But the path there is going to be violent. So buy on pullbacks. That's our mantra, and it will continue to be our mantra for the rest of the year. All right. Uh, well, I want to thank everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and always see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye all.